This week's podcast is brought to you by The Great Courses. I'm excited about that because I'm a big fan of The Great Courses. These are video and audio lecture series taught by top professors and experts. They just sent me the great series, The Art of Storytelling, from Parents to Professionals. Professor and professional storyteller Hannah Harvey provides a great overview of how and why to tell live stories. I really like how she gets into both the theory and practical bits of how to build a character arc, which is exactly the kind of thing we look for here. In fact, if you've wanted to do this kind of storytelling, this course would be a great introduction. You can check this lecture out with their special offer. Order from eight of the best-selling courses, including The Art of Storytelling, at up to 80% off the original price for a limited time. So order today. Go to thegreatcourses.com stories. That's thegreatcourses.com stories for eight of their best-selling courses at up to 80% off. One more time, that's thegreatcourses.com stories. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, out. I it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week's story is from April Salazar. It was recorded in September 2015 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. My husband and I were at the second trimester anatomy ultrasound, and I was squeezing his hand. I was 18 weeks pregnant. There was a flat screen television above us where we could see our baby in high definition. I could see his fingers and toes, and I squeezed my husband's hand harder. He has fingers and toes. I'd already screened during the first trimester for the most common birth defects. At 10 weeks, my obstetrician drew blood from my arm for a brand new test called Maternity 21. It tested for the most common birth defects, Down syndrome, Pateau syndrome, and Edwards syndrome. And it had come back negative. And by the way, when they were looking at fragments of my baby's DNA, they spotted some Y chromosomes in there. I was going to have a boy. It had taken a long time to conceive. It had taken a year and a half and an additional eight fertility treatments after that. I was so used to getting bad news regarding my ability to have a healthy pregnancy that I was constantly waiting for the proverbial shoe to drop during my first trimester. So when the maternity 21 test results came back and I made it into my second trimester, I started to let it go. My husband and I had met five years before. Well, we'd been married for five years. We'd met six years before. And it had been a blast. I was so looking forward to introducing a new person to our family. So at the anatomy ultrasound, after the ultrasound tech said that the baby's heart was strong, that his brain and his kidneys and his stomach looked healthy, I really started to relax. She started to take measurements of his arms, and then she switched to 3D mode. I could see his right arm draped across his face. 
And I looked at my husband to see if he was looking at the same thing that I was. I could see his face. The ultrasound tech changed the angle and she started to look more intently at his arm and started to take measurements. And I wondered why she was looking so carefully at this, but brushed it aside. Then she said, I need to go get the doctor. He came into the room and did more measurements and then left us alone. And I tried to think positive thoughts. A few minutes later, we were led into his office. The first thing that he said was, your baby is small. I thought, okay, that's not a big deal. But then he explained. He said that the baby had a skeletal dysplasia. He said that there was a good chance that it was a lethal skeletal dysplasia. And he took out a piece of paper and he started to sketch what that meant. He said that the baby's chest was bell-shaped and it was incredibly narrow where his lungs were developing. And because of that, they wouldn't be able to develop properly and he would never be able to breathe on his own. If I carried him to term, he would die within a few minutes. He said that they had caught it early, that normally that they caught it after 20 weeks. He also made a few suggestions. He said that I needed to come back in two weeks so that they could do another ultrasound to measure the baby's growth and to confirm the diagnosis. He said that I should do an amniocentesis immediately so that they could test the baby's DNA to try to get a definitive diagnosis. And he suggested that I visit a pediatric cardiologist to see how the baby's heart was developing in the narrow chest cavity. I was really confused and it took a few rounds before I really understood what he was saying. But what he was saying was that the baby had dwarfism. What they were trying to determine was whether it was a lethal form or not. On the subway ride home, I turned to my husband and I said, I can't give birth to a baby just to watch him die. And he said, of course not. That would be cruel. And I pretty much decided then that if the test results came back and it was a lethal form, that I would end the pregnancy. A few days later, I visited the pediatric cardiologist. He looked at my baby's heart carefully. He took lots of measurements. And then he said to me, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is that the baby's heart looks healthy. But because of his narrow chest, it's growing in sideways. He wasn't sure of the long-term prognosis and long-term meaning the next few months of my pregnancy. And I felt a surge of maternal pride 
because my baby had adapted in this beautiful, spectacular way. I told my husband later that night, and he said, you know, that's a very powerful metaphor. And I said, what, that the heart can adapt? And he said, yes. And that's not what I wanted to hear. I didn't want to hear that the heart can adapt. I wanted to hear that everything was going to be fine. I still had another week and a half until the second anatomy scan. I would be meeting again with a maternal fetal medicine specialist. During that time, I would stand at my kitchen sink and I would say over and over again to myself, please let it just be dwarfism. Please let it just be dwarfism. Also during that time, I pulled up the New York Times website and I saw that the House had passed a 20-week abortion ban. A lot of legislators were calling this the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Act, and I was horrified when I saw that because it had never crossed my mind that my baby would be capable of feeling pain at this point. It took me a couple of days, but I worked up my nerve to actually read about it, and that's when I saw that it was complete bunk, that fetuses at that stage are physiologically incapable of feeling pain. It was probably one of the rare instances where inflammatory political rhetoric was actually reassuring to me in the end. Unfortunately, at 20 weeks, I returned to the maternal fetal medicine specialist and he confirmed the diagnosis as a lethal skeletal dysplasia. I knew that I was going to be having an abortion. I scheduled the appointment for as soon as I could, but unfortunately the earliest that I could go in was the next week when I was 21 weeks pregnant. The night before the procedure, I pulled up Jezebel.com to try to get my mind off of things. And ironically, the thing that popped up was that Wendy Davis was filibustering against the 20-week abortion ban in Texas. So if Wendy Davis ever hears this, I just want you to know you have no idea how much that meant to me. It ended up being a three-day procedure. I had a choice between inducing labor and doing a DNE, which is a surgical abortion. If I induced labor, I would have been able to hold my son, which I still want more than anything. but it was actually far more dangerous for my own health to do that, and so I chose to have a DNA. It was a three-day hospital outpatient procedure. On the second day, we got a phone call from the ultrasound physician. The DNA tests had come back, and so we had a definitive diagnosis for the skeletal dysplasia. 
It was thanatophoric dysplasia type 1. Thanatophoric is Greek for death-bearing. That was two years ago. A year later, my husband and I were in the fertility office again for our 14th IUI. And exactly 40 weeks later, our daughter was born. In the two years since I ended my pregnancy, I've met a lot of women who have gone through the same thing. And I've been very committed to talking about my experience because I really don't want another woman who is dealing with what is probably the worst thing in her life to have to face any obstacles. I still miss my baby, although I don't cry on the subway every day. I have his footprints and I have his ashes, uh, which, are which are buried next to my father-in-law, um, and he was named after my father-in-law. My husband was right. The heart can adapt. I just really wish it didn't have to. Thank you. That was April Salazar. April is a writer and storyteller. She's written for the New York Times and has shared stories on the Moth Podcast and NPR's Latino USA. In her spare time, she works in technology at an educational nonprofit. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Weck, Darren Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Skylar Bear, and Liz Neely. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Union Hall for hosting the show and to Fall for lasting a while before winter gets here. Thanks for listening.